0: All right, now we have uh, our talk that everybody's been waiting for. Uh, Everybody was hoping that we'd have a whole day on hepatitis C. But the reason we're not having a whole day on hepatitis C is we were able to get Suzanne Nagy here, and she can tell you everything you need to know in less than a day. Uh, So, Suzanne is actually one of the most successful investigators in the field of hepatitis C. She does a lot of HIV work and hepatitis C, but she also is the current chairperson of the IDSA uh, ASLD guidelines on hepatitis C, so she is the best person to tell you what you need to know about the pathogenesis and treatment in 2017. So thank you for coming from UNC <laughs> or wherever they come from.
1: Whatever. You know, I really don't take that personally. That's a great institution too. And uh, as someone once said to me, you know, you're you're. Your blood is duke blue and I said no actually um, if you look at my artery It's uh, University of Maryland red since that's actually where I went to school So it's actually great to be um, back in the area and uh, thanks to everyone for hanging around for the very last talk Of the day as you can imagine there's a lot to cover So I'm glad we're running ahead of schedule and uh, and they told me I could eke out maybe more than 30 minutes to try to um, Present some of this to you, you know, we're coming right off of the European liver meeting Which I thought was was actually quite fascinating and, and, and uh, a lot of fun to be at a liver meeting, which is primarily hepatologists and GI docs, but there was a huge WHO presence and a lot of discussion um, about access and about the care continuum um, as well as eradication, and I, for a minute, was confused as to which meeting I, I was actually attending. So I wanted to just talk briefly about kind of clinical care, but then really end on what I think is such an exciting topic which is eradication of HCV so this is my disclosure slide as as uh, Dr. Massour mentioned um, uh, since joining the guidelines I've given up all personal conflicts of interest um, but do work at a clinical research institute where I have to maintain some research um, relationships as part of my job Um, but while we have this up I will ask for a show of hands how many folks here are treating HCV infected patients whether mono or co okay so a lot of you how many of you would you say are, um, are, are heavily engaged in treatment? So maybe treating um, uh, at least an HCV patient a week or something like that. Okay, good, great, excellent. It's always good to know who you're talking to. All right, so um, again, br- very brief HCV introduction because I, know that there, I knew there'd be some people in the room who are not active HCV treaters. Um, I, I always focus the ID talks um, on HCV uh, with some part on staging, I think that this is a very critically important topic as we are using more and more non-invasive markers. I think it's very important to make sure that all providers are very comfortable with medical decision making around these. Talking about, quickly about drug targets, but really focusing again, treatment today. So what are the guidelines currently say? I don't wanna belabor the point. Hopefully you all know about the AASODI-DSA guidelines. I'm free online, we're about to have this really fantastic upgrade um, that's gonna look a bit more like an app where you can actually click and point Genotype 1 treatment experience, serotic click, and pull up um, the recommendation. So it's about to get a lot more user friendly. Um, so I'd encourage you to look at that. As you all know, it's modeled on the DHHS HIV guidelines, so an online living document, because if you put this thing in print, it is obsolete within days. Um, although we like to do that at least once a year, because it makes us feel good. Um, and then I also wanted to focus you can't give a talk in, 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 in mid May. Um, without talking about the drugs that are actually currently in the pipeline and pending approval by the FDA sometime this summer, right? So um, again, um, talks are almost obsolete the minute you give them and then again Ending on something that I think is just really fascinating which is the idea of eradication And how do we get there? And this is going to be important here in the United States just as much as this is um, Across the globe. So again a quick update on epidemiology. So one of the things that was fascinating about the um, the WHO report, and I'm going to show you the report, but it came out right at EASL, I, so you see it here, WHO Global Hepatitis Report 2017, was actually a lot of updating of, the, of the, what they believe is the current prevalence and incidence of disease. and It's really quite different than what like, I've been writing in my grants, for example. So you can see here, this is HCV, now this is the Global Hepatitis Report, so it really focuses on Hep B and Hep C, but I'm going to primarily pull from the, the HCV data shows you that they're reporting a 1% prevalence globally at 71 million. Remember, many grants are writing 175 million. So this is a pretty significant decrease in the estimate of prevalence um, of infection across the globe. And it's not surprising, as you can see, that there is a disparity here, depending on where you live, as to what the prevalence is. I think what's more concerning, and this map shows you the incidence of disease. 1.75 million people are infected every year. So the WHO made the point to say that this is more than the number of people globally who die from Hep C or are cured annually of HCV. So you cannot eradicate an infection if your new incidence is greater than the people who are leaving this world for various reasons um, uh, with the virus, right? So this is a major issue. And as we talk about eradication, we're gonna talk about how the WHO is therefore focusing primarily actually on prevention. Prevention is so critical. Um, and reinfection, as we all know, is a major issue. and we'll talk about that as well. So, I also think it's really important, given the number of people who work in d c sitting in this room, um, to make the point that it's that 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 hCV is not just a liver disease, and I think you know it's it, it yes, it primarily causes liver disease, but we know very clearly, as you can see here um, in the in this panel here that a patient with active HCV has a higher all-cause mortality. Um, and this is extrahepatic disease. So it doesn't, it's not surprising to anyone that patients with HCV die more from liver disease, okay? But, but this is a pretty significant difference, absolute difference in mortality. And what drives this, things that drive this are kidney disease, cardiovascular disease. We know that patients with HCV have more neurocognitive disease. This is a big deal, and we need to start making the point that this is not just a liver disease. I think something that's also very important to talk about is the, the WHO data went through 2015 and at that time, as you can see, if you think of the leading causes, infectious disease causes of death globally, we know this, tuberculosis, HIV, malaria, hepatitis, here in orange, as of 2015, had almost surpassed tuberculosis and I'm certain, standing here in 2017, I could probably say safely that HCV is now the leading infectious disease cause of death globally. Um, And that's a major problem because it's a curable disease, a disease that can be eradicated from the face of the earth, and that's really important for us to move forward with. So staging of liver disease. So for those of you who are doing this, you know how difficult this can be. Um, When I was trained, I was trained that everyone got a liver biopsy, that liver biopsy was the gold standard. In fact, I was trained to do my own liver biopsies, so I'm a little bit sad that we don't do them anymore um, because my chief loved that I could actually make money (laughs) in infectious disease. Um, but but this remains something that's very very important right so this is our first question staging of liver disease is important for the following reasons except I know you guys all hate these except so don't forget the except part Um, so to determine length of treatment is that correct or not to determine the risk of liver cancer hepatocellular carcinoma HCC to determine candidacy for DA therapy or to determine safety of DA therapy so which of these is not a reason to stage I believe now I'm to step back, and the people in the back of the room are going to make this happen. There you go. So now we're voting. All right. They asked me what kind of music I want. I said rap, hip-hop, or Hamilton. (laughs) All of those are fine with me. Otherwise, it would have to be sing or something that my kids listen to. (laughs) Um, All right. So... So interestingly, it's almost, a, it's almost 25%, 25%, but most of you said determine candidacy, and that would be the correct answer, in my opinion. Um, you do use it to determine length of treatment, right? So if you're a cirrhotic with many therapies, you potentially are going to either get ribavirin or have a prolonged course of therapy. You absolutely need to know this to assess risk of liver, disease, of, of risk of liver cancer, because remember, once a patient has severe fibrosis, even after cure, they will go on to develop liver cancer. There's a risk of that. That risk probably lasts approximately 10 years. So I always tell my patients, this is like smoking in lung cancer. You smoke for greater than 30-pack-year history, your risk of lung cancer doesn't go away the day that you quit smoking. Right? It lasts for about 10 to 15 years. This is the same for any patient who has severe liver disease, F3 to F4, who is cured of their HCV and doesn't have ongoing liver injury. And then to determine safety, and we'll talk about this. Once a patient has cirrhosis, you must calculate the Child-Pew score because particular regimens, in particular PI-based DAA regimens, are contraindicated in patients who have decompensated liver disease. So that's child pu B or C. The problem with like child pu Bs is they can walk in and you would never guess they're a child pu B until you type in the numbers And you realize that they're higher risk, they get higher exposures of that PI, and there's a risk of decompensation if you give this to them. So these are critically important. Candidacy in and of itself should not be determined by stage of liver disease, at least per the AASOD IDSA guidelines. So staging still matters, and this is just a summary, I'm not gonna read it, but, but ultimately, staging still matters for the reasons that we just discussed, right? So you gotta make a decision about treatment, how you're gonna treat the patient, and then whether or not they're gonna lead long-term liver care even after they achieve cure. Um, and, and as you all know, this, the, you know the, the gold standard for a long time was liver biopsy. Um, the reason it was the gold standard is because liver biopsy can, as a whole, differentiate stage F1, right, which is minimal fibrosis from F2, which is periportal fibrosis with uh, the beginning of bridging, F3, which is bridging, and F4, which is now bridging and enough damage that you're seeing nodularity, right? Um, And that was very important back in the days where we were looking at interferon and really having to do a true risk-benefit assessment. So we no longer have to do that anymore. So although many of the non-invasive markers like Fib4 and Opri and Fibroshore were available way back when, we didn't use them because they weren't reliable to differentiate F1 from F2 from F3 from F4. Although, to be clear, the Fibroshore report very clearly says that you can do that. And that's with about 70% confidence, and as medical decision makers, we recognize that 70% confidence doesn't get you very far in making medical decisions, right? But when your question changes from, can I differentiate F1 from F2, from F3, from F4, to can I differentiate patients with severe liver disease, whether it's F3, F4, or just F4 from, from non-severe liver disease, these non-invasive tests perform much better. So now your, your your level of confidence in making that medical decision with these tests increases from the 70% range up to the 85 to 90 to even sometimes over 90% range, which is really why most of us are more comfortable using these, right? Although we could all, for those of you who are doing this, you all have, I'm sure, many stories of the patient who's, you know, a pre-score is 0.4 and their fiber scan comes back at 15. One says no cirrhosis, the other says cirrhosis, and then you're scratching your head saying, what am I going to do? And and we we can certainly talk about that maybe in the Q&A and how we manage this um, in our clinical practice. So again, I've mentioned some of these non-invasive markers. Again, a non-invasive, these non-invasive markers are continuous range, right? But we pick cutoffs like with any other diagnostic test that optimizes either sensitivity or specificity of the combination of the two. In my clinical practice, a pre-score of zero, less than 0.3 rules out cir- cirrhosis. Um, greater than two rolls in. So I kind of have my rules of thumb that I use. I always use two non-invasive markers with a hope for some general, disc- from some general Concordance, right? I prefer to use a fiber scan because I have access to that plus some non-invasive serologic marker I would I would discourage you from using a fib4 and an OPRI score because they actually use the exact same tests um, I'd say that if you're going to use two serologic markers, you probably should use a Fib4, you know, a Fib4 or APRI plus a Fibroshore, which represent different markers um, and, and hopefully would then give you a, be, a better picture of, of what's going on for the patient. Um, the other thing that I think is really important to emphasize is that imaging, MRI scan, ultrasound, CT, cannot tell you how much scar a patient has. No matter how much our radiologists think they're very good. Any radiologists in the room before I trash them? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I love my radiologists. I have friends that are radiologists. Um, but as much as they want to kind of say this patient could have cirrhosis, the bottom line is shy of some very specific findings like on an MRI, enlarged caudate lobe, and enlarged spleen, and potentially some varices thrown in for good measure, you're not going to have great confidence that this patient actually has cirrhosis. So heterogeneity means nothing. Right, Every patient at this day and age, regardless of whether they have hep C, have heterogeneity because of fat in the liver, all of that, right? So the reason you use these tests is to look for fat, steatosis, critically important. If a patient comes into treatment with steatosis, you need to ensure that it resolves with cure. Otherwise, this patient has ongoing liver injury for another reason, whether they just have metabolic syndrome and they have NASH, whether it's from their antiretrovirals, that sort of thing. Um, so that's why it's important. And also, we primarily do this in patients with known cirrhosis to stage them um, for, their, for, to, for risk of HCC, right? So you're really screening for HCC. Um, but beyond that, you are not using it to determine their stage of liver disease. Does that make sense? Um, and I think there's, a, there's a, a maybe a bad habit of thinking that you can, that you can say that many times when a, you see a port of, you know, H, you know uh, cirrhosis is your reason, because if you don't say it's your reason, then it won't get covered by insurance, and then there's a read that this looks like a nodular liver, um, and, and I think that's a problem. Nodularity is about a 50-50 chance that that patient has cirrhosis, right? So um, don't take that, that, that for much more than what it is. All right. so drug targets, I'm just going to focus on this really quickly and then summarize the guidelines in terms of um, what our current options are for therapy. I'm going to try this one more time. There we go. Um, So, this is just to show you the life cycle of HCV, and the reason I I bring this up is, is just to make the point that, I mean, with patients, I always use the term cure, so you heard someone mention this. And hepatitis C, we can cure this infection. We can eradicate it from the host, and it does not come back, right? And the main reason, or not, not really the main reason, the reason that that is true, unlike HIV, hepatitis B, herpes, is that there is no intranuclear phase for this virus. There's no integration, there's no CCC DNA. Um, and, and for that reason, we can eradicate this. There's no latent reservoir to our knowledge. Um, and that is why this is something that we can cure. So I, I use that word to patients because that means something to them. They get that this is about cure. How do we do this? We do this with a combination, just like an HIV, of targeted antivirals with specific mechanisms, primarily to enzymes, protease inhibitors, and polymerase inhibitors, but also to the NS5A protein, which is not enzymatic, but when bound by a targeted antiviral, can be quite potent. As you know, very early on, some of these drugs, like protease inhibitors, were not pangenotypic. They were very specific to particular genotypes, which made it very complicated. Um, now, as we move along, we're getting pangenotypic regimens, pangenotypic NS5As, polymerase inhibitors, protease inhibitors, and really um, no regimen moving forth um, would, would, would not be pangenotypic at this point, because there's really not a need um, for a non-pangenotypic regimen. And, and from that perspective, it makes it much easier in the low and middle income countries or, resource, uh, or low resource um, settings to, to not have to worry about genotyping and that sort of thing. We can certainly talk about whether or not we're there yet, um, but we're getting very close, I would say. So again, the reason to treat these patients is to reduce all-cause mortality. This is very specifically put in because all-cause mortality is independent of stage of liver disease, which, as you all know, We've been through a pretty rough time in HCV um, where we have um, uh, been denied access for many of our patients uh, because of their lack of having severe liver disease. Um, And and so this is a point that the guidelines really try to change um, uh, from the first version to make sure that we, we emphasize the importance of that. And again, as you all know, treatment of HIV patients is no different, right, than patients with HCV monoinfection. And many, I don't even know if I mentioned HIV once in this talk. And that's in part uh, intentional because we treat these patients exactly the same. An HIV patient should be viewed no differently than an HCV monoinfected patient. Shy of the fact that they potentially have more accelerated liver disease, they have a lot, they potentially have more NASH and NAFLD and that sort of thing, which may increase their risk. But a very very, um, an interesting study that came out of uh, the intramural group at the NIAID reporting that in a very small but well characterized cohort of HIV-HCV infected patients, 25% did not normalize their liver enzymes after HCV cure. that argues these patients have ongoing liver injury for some reason, and those patients can't just be let go, right, because they potentially could still be progressing. Whether that's alcohol, whether that's NASH and steatosis, it's gonna be something that as providers we have to figure out before we we let them go. So these next two slides are meant to show, those of you who are doing this know this. Those of you who aren't, just to show you that this is increasingly simple. So this is a summary that if you had a Genotype 1 patient that came into your clinic and they wanted treatment, whether they had never been treated before, had previously failed a PEG-RIBA um, experience regimen, you can see here that you can achieve um, over 98% cure um, with many regimens, um, all of which offer 12 weeks of therapy, um, one potentially eight weeks in a, very, in a, in a subset of patients, Um, And you really can't go wrong. So this is like the slide that you saw earlier. There really is no wrong answer here. Um, I'd like to tell you that you actually have a choice in choosing these. As many of you know, the choice is frequently made by the insurer, not by the provider in this setting. But I do think that you can feel really good that no matter what your patient gets, as long as they take the drug, um, they're going to have an exceptional rate um, of cure. And that is the beauty of this. Does it get more complicated for particular um, subtypes or genotypes? I'll show you that, that, is, that is, the answer is yes. Um, and specifically in patients with compensated cirrhosis, right? Um, and we're not gonna talk about decompensated cirrhosis or anything like that, but if you take the same group of patients that we just talked about and just add that they had now have cirrhosis, the, as you can see, we have fewer 12-week regimens, so now we drop from whatever we had up here, six or seven 12-week regimens, Um, Potentially an eight-week regimen to four 12-week regimens and in light blue are the alternative regimens now again Remember alternative doesn't mean don't use it just means that these are regimens that may not be optimal Primarily because they're 24 weeks, right? So if you have regimens can all offer 98% cure One 12 and one 24 is a pretty obvious answer for a patient. I think as to which one they want to take But these still all offer exceptionally high cure rates for this what was previously PEG-RIBA experience comes in cirrhotic for patients in the older days that had maybe a 15% chance of cure at best, right? 98%. This is amazing. Um, and so, so, yes, it's a little bit more complicated in terms of the differences, but ultimately you can achieve the same goal. Um, and that's really the most important part. So, this, to me, this is a summary of when you're approaching a patient um, kind of, how do you think about this, and how do you get down from this long laundry list of seven or whatever regimen options down to the one that you're going to choose, presuming that you have a choice? So one is is that genotype and subtypes still matter. We're going to talk about that. Um, cirrhosis, yes, no, is a huge one, which is why the staging is so critically important, and being confident in your staging is critically important. Prior treatment experience. So we're getting closer and closer to where we're going to be lumping together. Treatment experience as kind of PEG RIBA, soft PEG RIBA, tilaprovir PEG RIBA, you know, those older regimens, and then DAA failures. And you're going to see this as we talk about the new regimens that will be approved this summer. And then the other question is resistance testing required. This to me isn't a reason to choose a different regimen, but you have to know whether or not that regimen requires resistance testing. Unlike in HIV, where resistance testing at baseline is recommended for all, in HCV it's actually only particular regimens or particular patient populations, and this is one where resistance in hep C is quite different than resistance in HIV. So if a patient has a, has a genotype in HIV that says that they have an M184V, as we talked about earlier, right, or a K103N, you know that that patient has resistance, for example, K103N2 efavirenz, right? So this is not true um, in hep C. So you have a patient who has a Y93 mutation, um, which can confer high fold resistance um, in vitro to, for example, a lodiposphere based regimen or an great based regimen. However, for the majority of patients who are treatment naive without cirrhosis, just give it to them. It's going to work just fine. And it really, I view resistance, especially NS5A resistance, as just another baseline predictor. And if you start adding things up, treatment experience, cirrhotic, Now you have NS5A resistance, potentially now this all is going to mean that you're going to want to extend therapy or add ribavirin. But you have to get a a number of these to build up because these regimens are generally so potent that maybe one of those predictors isn't enough. Does that make sense? So, so it, it, even though it like shows up in a report as red resistance, I've had a number of my HIV colleagues that email me like, "Are you sure you want?" To? I mean, I'm not questioning your decision making, but are you sure you want to do that because it says resistant? And I'm like, "No, I, I totally get it. Trust me, um, I did see it, it, you know, and and you know, and, and we talk about it because it isn't as intuitive as what we're used to doing in HIV." So once you get through that, um, then the other big things are to think about renal function. So some of these regimens are not um, approved in patients with a GFR less than 30. Um, Only one regimen technically is approved in patients who are on dialysis or have GFRs less than 30. Um, Liver function, again, do not forget for your patients with severe liver disease to calculate that child Pugh score. Um, You don't want to make the mistake of giving a, a, a child Pugh B um, as compensated as they look, uh, because they don't have ascites, uh, a PI-based regimen, right? Um, and then also, don't forget about drug interactions. This is a critically important piece, especially for our HIV patients. And you put those things all together. Usually, your number of available regimens is shorter, um, and then you can make a decision, again, still knowing that you're going to get an 80, a 98% SVR. So here I just summarize the the general, I know there's a few missing, but the general regimens that we have available, I couldn't fit all of them on the slide. Um, But just to show you how you might compare and contrast these um, in terms of, you know, pill burden, cost, drug interactions, adverse uh, effects. Again, these are extremely well tolerated, um, shy of the ribavirin that might be required. Emergent resistance, we're going to talk about this with the new regimens as well, but again, look at that efficacy, doesn't matter, right? Um, what is it important to look at here is that if you want or have a patient with CKD, so GFR less than 30 or end-stage renal disease, then you're going to be looking at using the albizvir grazoprevir regimen, um, uh, or potentially, if for some reason you can't use that, which would be a little bit odd, then potentially the, the prod regimen. And then it shows you that for the severe liver disease or the decomps, you're looking at the NS5A slash uh, soft combinations because that's where you have safety and approval, right? So, um, so, you have again some of the things that you might consider that would lean you one way or the other, but it certainly is great to have all of these options. So, again with genotype 2 and genotype 3, so 1, 4, 5, and 6 actually have a 1 and 4 have a lot of options, 5 and 6 have fewer, but genotype 2 and 3 have been the, some of the more interesting, and really 3 has become the real challenge. And as I'll show you, but for genotype two, we, we have one recommended regimen, it's the phosphovid and that is because it, um, it, it really is, it was superior to the prior standard of care, which was softened riba. Um, and then the cladosphere and the dropped down to an alternative, and that was primarily, many reasons, but, but you know, this we just have less experience, there were fewer patients represented in the trials, um, and uh, we don't consider costs in the guidelines, but obviously it's a more costly regimen. And and really this is quite quite an exceptional regimen in genotype two patients. Geotype three, as you can see, um it becomes a little bit more challenging. We have several recommended regimen: soft valpadosphere, decladosphere, cephospavere. Um, and even uh, a combination of elbizvirogazolpivir plus soft. So again, a regimen that wasn't elbizvirogazolpivir viewed as a pan-genotypic regimen actually does have reason- reasonable activity against genotype you know, 3. When you add in that third drug, okay, this is kind of like the triple that we're going to be looking at moving forward. It really is a pan-genotypic regimen, has genotype you know, 3 activity. Um, and so you have multiple options, although likely the cheapest and the one that's supported by most insurers. Um, is going to be the soft alpatosphere, although I've had insurers that, that actually prefer DAC soft, depending on what they've negotiated, which, as you've heard, is um, completely opaque, and we have no idea uh, what, what people are paying for these. So, so it's been great, because initially for genotype 3, we really had no options. And in fact, as you know, we have an epidemic of acute hepatitis C going on in this country. It's, very, it's quite devastating. Um, I'm sure you all heard of the recent CDC report that we have a three-fold increase in the incidence of HCV currently in people aged 16 to 26. Um, it's devastating because of a new epidemic um, of the transition from opiates, um, prescription opiates, to heroin in, in young people. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and in our area, what we're mostly seeing, believe it or not, is genotype 3, as if we have kind of selected out um, for this genotype because it's a little bit more difficult to treat. So question two, and this one, I don't, you know, this one's a bit tougher. Um, all of the statements are true except, okay, it's another except question, don't shoot me. Um, for genotype three, um, the new regimens that are pending, that are going to be approved this summer, are they non-inferior for genotype three as compared to DAX soft and treatment naive patients without cirrhosis? Are they non-inferior to soft valve? So are these going to be non-inferior to... Um, and equal to the current standards of care Um, is efficacy in eight weeks going to be something you can do in this population has someone actually hit the hit that mark and does the y93 which some of you may know is kind of the 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 big problem for genotype 3 current regimens including soft val um, is it going to remain a predictor of treatment failure moving forward so we'll see what you guys think I am not thrown away my shot. I am not away. There we my go. Shot. My five-year-olds love just this. Like young, scrappy, Although there are a few words shot. we have to sing over. To Dad, the best part is my husband and I make so up different words to sing over, so college. then they correct us. Those are not the right words, mommy. Alright, sorry. Alright. So, so except, so you guys got it, so the Y93 will no longer be predictive in and of itself, so the majority of you got this correct. Um, but it is non-inferior, so the, these regimens are going to perform very well compared to the standard of care, and in fact, we probably have a regimen that potentially will um, offer eight weeks of therapy for a genotype 3 patient, which is, um, which is uh, quite exciting. So I want to summarize some of this, I know that you guys at most people at this many bar graphs just start to, sh- you know, shut down and think about other things. Um, like the rainy day outside. But I, I put these in mostly to make a couple of points. Just big picture to compare and contrast where we're going. I feel like when new regiments come, everyone's like, this is it, right? It's like 100% in eight weeks. It's going to be amazing. And, and generally that's true, but there are some things to kind of set the, kind of set the boundaries on where potentially we may see this go. So one of the regimens is Glicaprevir, which is very hard to say, Pibrentisphere. So GP, which we say um, is a little bit easier to get out. Um, This is a regimen that is coming forth. It is a fixed-dose combination, what I call a nuke-sparing regimen. So it does not have a nuke, it's a dual treatment, which I think is very interesting. This is in non-serotic patients. um, And you can see there's a lot of patients. They looked at eight, which is what you see in the blue bars versus 12 weeks, very potent regimen. Treatment naive and experienced, they did not have DAA failures. So if there's going to be a take-home point here, I would argue that when you're looking at eight weeks for this regimen um, uh, you, or even 12, we're not talking about DAA failures, in my opinion, and I'll show you the data for that. Relapse is less than 1%. If, like rules of thumb, when we're looking at new regimens, a relapse rate less than 1% is really where we need to be, right? If you don't achieve a 99% cure, then really no one's interested in what you're selling. Um, the other thing to recognize is there's no nuke here. It's a PI and an NS5A, and when pa- patients fail, they fail with resistance, okay? They fail with resistance to the best possible regimen that we have, and you know type three does pretty well. You see 97%, you know, no one's gonna complain about that, but I will show you some additional data that argues potentially in particular patients, potentially cirrhotics, patients with baseline resistance, I'll show you kind of maybe what the next monster NS5A resistance mutation will be, may be a problem. So there may still be a little nuance here, but as you can see, easily achieved noninferiority here. Um, It's quite comparable with eight weeks of therapy, Um, even in cirrhosis, doesn't matter, um, in a vast majority of patients, but just non-DAA failures, okay? So to summarize a little bit, just deeper dive into genotype 3, and again, I don't want to belabor this, but if you deeper dive into genotype 3, what this shows you is a very interesting study where they went after 12 weeks versus one of the standards of care, right, DACSOF and treatment-naive non-cirrhotics, they achieved non-inferiority. They actually said, well, since we got 12 weeks and 12 weeks looks so good, let's go for 8. So they added, not long after, because of data from another study, an 8-week arm And you can see that, this is non-inferiority, but the one point I would bring home is, you can see here that there was a 3% relapse in the eight-week arm versus a 1% relapse in these arms. So there were more relapses, no doubt about it. I mean, this is the bottom line. The risk of shortening therapy is always going to be at the risk of relapse for some of these patients. Um, And where did that happen? Primarily in people that had this baseline A30K. And you can see that when patients failed, if they had an A30K at baseline, many of them then acquired a 193, which significantly increases resistance, right? So, 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 again, fantastic regimen, but in genotype 3 in particular, we may have some things to think about to truly optimize these patients because if you fail with resistance to this regimen, it's going to be a little bit scary thinking about how we bail them out, right? And uh, And so... So it'll be interesting to see what the FDA says about this. I think the other thing to think about with this regimen is if a patient comes in, you're going to see this with the DAA failures as well. If they have NS3 and NS5A resistance in combination, so the 193 doesn't matter, but if you have a 193 in your NS5A and you have resistance in your protease, you're more likely to fail, right? So this is all going to be something that as far as optimizing the patient sitting in front of you, um, potentially you may see some of this coming out maybe by the FDA I don't know I don't work for the FDA um, and or maybe by the guidelines depending on, on on where that guidance needs to come from so when we look at the triple regimen so this is you know I know that prod was a triple regimen but when we think of kind of next-generation triple regimens true DAA salvage regimens um, so this is the the sofaspavir velpatasvir. so this is you know the the regimen that we all currently have available They're adding in now a protease inhibitor called voxelopravir. I have no idea who came up with these names. Maybe someone in this room. I'm not sure. Um, But they're very hard to say. So this is a summary, kind of a pooled analysis from EASL that looked at their studies in treatment-naive patients. I will say, do you see here, genotype 3 treatment experience. When they lumped in the Polaris 3, it also included some treatment experience patients. But what you're looking at here is, could they achieve with an eight-week course of therapy... Um, a same cure as a 12-week course of SOF and VEL, right? And what you see here is, in fact, they failed non-inferiority. It actually, eight weeks of this triple regimen did not meet non-inferiority criteria as compared to 12 weeks of SOF-VEL, which is a current standard of care. The question is why, and this is very interesting, 3.8% relapse, the vast majority, 14, I believe it was, were 1As. Um, So there's a 1A problem with this triple regimen for eight weeks, right? Not for 12, for eight weeks. So you saw that GP looks really good for eight weeks for kind of non-DAA salvage regimen, kind of a first-line treatment for the vast majority of patients. Here, it looks really good, but there's a major 1A problem. And so I don't know how this goes down. Potentially, for 1As, it gets 12 weeks. For others, it gets eight. I have no idea um, what this looks like. But this is, is in fact, an issue for this regimen in terms of getting an across-the-board pan-genotypic eight-week approval, I think. Um, And then when we go to DAA failures, which, to be fair, is a lot of what we're looking for, right? I mean, what we really – we have a ton of great options for treatment for standard patients. What we really need is those few. They're few and far between, but we all have failures if we're doing this in our clinic. Um, and this is where we really need a lot of help. This is where I think the unmet need is, right? DA failures. So the GP regiment is pretty early in their, in their, in their program for looking at DA failures. But as you can see here, um, 12 versus 16 weeks, they were around 90% SVR, okay? so this is. For many of us, I guess if it's a salvage, it's a salvage, 90% should sound good, but we need to cure these patients. Um, and so, you know, whether, whether this ends up being that there needs to be an addition of ribavirin or something, I think it's going to have to be figured out. And again, if patients came in with dual resistance, because if they failed a prior regimen like elbasvir/grazoprevir or PROD where they have NS5A and NS3 resistance, 55% SVR with 12 or 16 weeks. So. I'm, I'm not sure where this ends up as a true salvage regimen just yet, but it looks like it's not going to be necessarily as easy as, as we thought it was going to be for such a potent regimen. Now, when you look at the triple again, this is now one more drug added in. This is another pooled analysis of DAA failures where the vast majority had some resistance. Only 17% had none. You can in fact see that um, they actually performed very well. They only, they had a 1.6% relapse, so it's better, although not less than 1%. And in fact, if you look at the Polaris one, all of their failures were actually cirrhotics. So you could foresee a situation where, you know, cirrhotics get 12 weeks plus Riba, and everyone else as a salvage for DAA failures gets 12 weeks. So I would argue we kind of see a salvage regimen coming up, and we see a great eight-week kind of first-line regimen coming up and where they go, where each one goes on the other side is is a little less clear to me, um, to be honest with you. Um, That being said, clearly we're gonna have some other options. Um, And everyone's talking about a GP plus soft regimen. (laughs) I don't think think that'll ever happen, but... um, So question number three, and now just to get into the elimination plan, um, as we talk about this. So the five core interventions for hepatitis elimination include all except Injection safety, blood safety, hep C vaccine, testing services, and treatment. So this is based on that um, WHO elimination plan that I showed you earlier. Oh, there we go again. Oh, there we go. Good thing my kids aren't here. (laughs) So good. How many people here have seen Hamilton? I'm so jealous. I can't wait. It's coming to the DPAC in Durham next year. Very exciting. Wow, look at that. You guys are on it. I thought I might trick you because it was the end of the day, and you might think it said Hep B, but anyway, all right. So you are absolutely correct because we don't have one of these, Um, so you're actually still paying attention. So I would say that for any of you who are interested in hepatitis, this is a really, really fantastic report, and it really does provide great guidance to groups who are on the ground, really trying to roll this out across across the globe. Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things and bring in some data that we've recently seen as to maybe how this could work. So again, one of the biggest things in low-middle-income countries is understanding the epidemiology. In some countries, we have no idea what the prevalence of hepatitis C is. We have no idea how people get the disease because there's no IV drug use in that country, for example. And I'll talk to you about some of these differences. It's screening, it's diagnosis, and then obviously it's prevention. So as you know, and as I just said, we are in the setting of an epidemic in the United States where our primary risk is people who inject drugs, right? Of that 1.75 million new infections. But if you look at where does new HCV come from in low and middle income countries, unsafe healthcare procedures. So as many of you probably know, in many parts of the world, it's not IDU. It's it's not sex, um, it's because of practices within hospitals and healthcare centers of reusing syringes, multi-use vials, that sort of thing, right? This is a big deal. So when you think about who would you target in another country, you potentially would target people who have access to health care, people who work in healthcare. In low-to-middle-income countries, people who work in hospitals have significantly higher prevalence of hepatitis C um, because they are exposed um, quite regularly. So this is the, the kind of five core interventions. And as I mentioned, four focus on prevention, prevention, prevention. We've got to get the 1.75 million down. And then the other rep looks at testing and treatment. This shows you the cascade of care. They make the argument, the WTO makes the argument, that you've got to affect every part of the cascade. And as of 2015, this is where we are. It's, it's I mean, it's a very impressive, you know, job that I think is ahead of those people who are doing this sort of work on the ground. Um, uh, Diagnosed, we have a 70% gap. Started on treatment, a 73% gap. Um, But the bottom line is, as you all know, um, humans are the only host for this virus, and we could truly eradicate this if there was an effort globally and an interest in making it happen. We have the tools. Um, The question is, do we have the will, Um, both politically, monetarily, et cetera, um, I'm just going to. The point of this is to show you that modeling in almost every country suggests that if you not only prove the efficacy, but efficacy and access, you do get to eradication in almost every country. Okay? Um, and then the point here is to say again, this summarizes the things that we're talking about. I just wanted to use this to summarize that, as you all know, reinfection is a major, major problem. It's not just in our IDUs, but it's also in our high-risk individuals in our HIV clinics, and particularly our HIV-positive MSM. Um, So if you look at some of the reinfection rates that have been reported at CROI, et cetera, we are looking at numbers that are sometimes 21 per 100,000 persons. This is exceptionally high rate. So how do I spend my last visit with my patients that we've just cured? It's hammering into them that they can get this again and again and again, and that there has to be a change. Some of you probably saw at Croix, the data from the Amsterdam PrEP clinic that an HIV-negative men coming in for PrEP clinic, 3% prevalence of hepatitis C. That's exceptional. We thought that this was mostly an HIV-positive um, you know, MSM issue, but this is not. Um, so it also is, for those of you running PrEP clinics, is, is knowing that you need to test, screen, and educate about the risk of hepatitis C in your MSM. This is a critically important issue for us. So I will end on what I believe is a highlight um, that came from Croy. So the Athena cohort you all know in the HIV world, right, this is out of the Netherlands. Of course, the Netherlands have been way ahead of the game for a very long time in terms of risk reduction, um, safe needle use, all of that. And what they showed is in their very small country and their very well-contained cohort that when they expanded access for HCV, Um, opened up the floodgates, said that we will no longer limit access based on stage of liver disease. They have gotten to a point of 70% eradication in this cohort in their country. What does that mean? When they looked at their risk of reinfection or incident infection, really, in that period of time between 2014, their, their, their expansion happened in November of 2015, to 2016, they cut their incidence rate in half. This, to my knowledge, is the first proof in in, in people um, with HIV and Hepatitis C um, of treatment as prevention. You drop the rate in your cohort to 70% and you can cut in half your incidence rates, right? So this shows you that this can work, and it can work on a larger scale if we have the will and the way. Um, So summary slide is basically global burden, leading cause of death globally, it's very important. Um, DA, DA therapies are effective and are a critical part to this, but prevention is key. And as providers, PrEP and in people treating hep C, we have to remember that reinfection or risk of infection is exceptional. That's our burden to carry in terms of educating our patients. And I'll stop there.
0: So it seems that everybody's goal is to pick on The easier diseases in HIV, like syphilis, to eradicate. We haven't done that. Now we're focusing on hepatitis C. So, what are the impediments in Durham to eradicating this? Medicaid. So, it's money.
1: Um, So, you know, it's amazing. So, I I work, I always say, I, I work at the Durham VA and I work at Duke. So I cross the street, and every time I cross the street, depending on which way I'm going, my ability to treat my patients dramatically changes. So many of you probably know this, but the VA um, you know, kind of basically opened up um, access to all veterans, regardless of stage of liver disease, well over a year ago. In our VA, we have treated over 1,200 patients. We have cured 98%. We have treated 85% of our veterans in our VA. At Duke, it is completely the opposite. We are scratching 20% access right now. Um, uh, Now, the good news in North Carolina is that they have just – well, we we maybe don't even know this yet, but I know that we are now going to be um, removing all restrictions. And once that happens, I think it will be dramatically better. But I think until then, um, we still really struggle. And it's like two in the same place – 50 yards apart, dramatic differences in ability to truly control this based on access.
0: Well, there are people in this room from HRSA and other federal agencies, uh, we hope that we'll be working with them to uh, uh, reduce the uh, burden, uh, uh, Dr. Sag? Yes,
2: yeah, so um, what's different, if you, as you walk across the street from the VA to your Duke clinic, uh, that's for the mono-infected patients, right? So the, the patients who are on ADAP, who are eligible, um, co-infected, we can treat them, right?
1: Yeah, but patients, Medicaid patients are not on ADAP. So my HIV, ah. I, the only patients with HIV that I have without access are, so here's are the ones question. on Medicaid.
2: Here's a question for HRSA, because the way I would interpret that is that that's a gap. Absolutely. Right? That's a gap in services, and by my interpretation of Ryan White legislation, uh, it's to fill gaps into plugs holes that the insurance doesn't cover. So mm-hmm. if they are on Medicaid... Uh, then that might be something that you could explore. At least in our clinic, uh, we're trying. Our, we have a goal of treating and curing all of our co-infected patients by the end of this calendar year. And the way we're going about it is, we, you know, obviously years ago, like you guys, we tested everyone as if they were, you know, to see what their status was. And once they were identified, um, now it's just a question of training the providers to get comfortable and. It's, it's kind of fun, right, to treat and cure people.
1: It's, it's not only, it's, it is fun. Actually, it's, it's amazingly rewarding to be able to cure a patient. I've said, now I see why surgeons do what they do. Because um, it's <laughs> lopping it off, it's cure. Right? <laughs> which, which parts
2: of this are you talking about?
1: That <laughs> the cure—I mean, so the cure part is amazing, and that means a lot to patients. So but she's, I will you say, started
2: throwing your fiber scan against right. the wall when things don't go well, and that type of thing. Um,
1: but it has—it has, it has been—it's it's been extremely frustrating to have HIV patients without access, and what I, you know, and, and, and I, I know in my state that's going to change. But we've all seen the numbers. We yep. know that in many Medicaid's across the country, the denial rate is fifty percent. That there continues to be in many states. Um, limitations on access based on stage of liver disease or um, uh, uh, that excluding patients because they're actively using drugs. Um, right. and these are, we all know that these are intentional barriers um, to, to prevent these patients from having access because it costs money. So I, so. I
2: don't want to put anybody on the spot. Is, is there someone here from HERSA who feels comfortable telling me whether my interpretation is correct? I think it is. Check with your project officer uh, if you have Ryan White funding. Yep. Oh good!
0: Yay! Bravo! Thank you. We weren't going to identify these people, but now they're self-identified. <laughs> that's right. Now it depends. So the state of North Carolina's ADAP, from what I remember, does have the hepatitis C drugs on them. Oh, yeah. right. Just because they have Medicaid in the state doesn't mean that they're not that they can't access their ADAP program. So that's a
2: Yes. No. It is. It depends. You know. Yes, because we're. Okay. You can. So yes. It if you have a
0: need, you can use Correct. It is up to the states to decide if the hepatitis C drugs are on their formularies. The um, they're not
1: in our state. Or
0: right. There's. There are ways to do it. I'm not sure about North Carolina. They're, they're not on the top
1: of my... North Carolina, yeah. No, but they're looking at it. I know too. Yeah, so, yeah.
0: but again, if you're changing. It, there are gaps there, so they can be filled.
1: Yeah, I, mean, that's actually, I think that's actually great, that is great to know. For us, it was not on ADAP, and now Medicaid's opening up in North Carolina, but I do know in many states that remains not true. And so there, there does remain a significant limitation across, across the, the states.
0: Uh, what about treating acute hepatitis C? Uh, are you for or against that?
1: <laughs> um, that's a great question. So um, I am for treating acute hepatitis C. I think the question is when the timing of treating acute hepatitis C. So as folks know, when someone's acutely infected, there is a potential chance of spontaneous clearance. However, during that period of time, they also may be at risk of of being high risk of transmitting. So what I do with these folks, and sadly I've had more acute HCV cases in my clinic in the past year than I have ever had, um, is I monitor them every four weeks. If their viral load doesn't continue to go down, um, uh, then then I treat them. And uh, I will tell you that we will, and there's increasing data coming out about the potential that you can use DAA therapies and you can shorten in this setting. Um, and so potentially we will have newer recommendations in the guidelines even to support. As you know, in the European liver guidelines recommend an eight-week regimen of sofosbuvir for the treatment of acute hepatitis C uh, based on uh, zero studies. Um, but but there are studies of six weeks um, and and people that come in with yellow eyes which are again, these people are more likely to spontaneously clear so that data has to be taken with a grain of salt Um, but as we acquire more data uh, regarding eight weeks I think we'll get to that point where, where I think we can feel good about pushing it now whether insurers, many insurers as you all know require a six month period so right now all approvals are for chronic hepatitis C and many insurers want to see evidence of infection that's at least six months old So it becomes a a big argument, but um, I love writing appeal letters, so.
0: (laughs) All right, so if you need to write an appeal letter, uh, talk to Dr. Nagy. she (laughs) will write it for you. Um, What about genotype three, would you wait for the newer drugs?
1: You know, to be honest with you, as you just saw, we're not getting any better at treating genotype three. We potentially can treat it in a shorter course of therapy, um, but I don't necessarily know that if I had a patient who was treatment naive, um, that I would wait. Uh, to be honest with you. I, I mean, I think the current therapies are fantastic. As I mentioned, what they're bringing is the potential for salvage, um, so those are critically important patients, or the potential for shortening therapy, but that doesn't change the SVR. And
0: In your clinic, what do you actually do to assess uh, the stage of uh, fibrosis? Do you do FibroScan and FibroSure, or do you have a policy?
1: Yeah, no. So, so I, um, I, I, I do a pre-score and FibroScan, um, you know, a fiber sure, as you all know, costs money, um, and it's no better than in a pre-score. So I, that's what I use. But as I mentioned, if you don't have access to a fiber scan, um, then probably doing a, a fiber sure and, and, and a pre or a fib4 would make sense.
0: And who does the fiber scan? Do
1: so our, uh, I actually don't. I mean, it, it, you know, I'm trained to do it, but the truth is I don't have time. Um, it's like one more thing. So, um, so we actually have uh, nurse practitioners and PAs who are all trained to do them. Um, in the clinic and, and bill for it and it's a good thing. <laughs>
2: yeah, the amazing part is that the, the staff is very good at doing them but if they start having trouble they come to me and say hey do it. It's like yeah,
1: right.
2: you do right. you a hundred more than I do but all right, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. And, uh, it's
1: yeah. like the poor patient where the phlebotomist can't get it who draws blood a right. hundred times a They turn a day. to the intern, so the they intern, go to the intern who's terrified years. but you know.
0: Right. <laughs> well uh, any, any final questions? All right, well, this was a a great uh, overview of hepatitis C. I guess uh, uh, ISUSA can think about whether or not next year we should have a whole day, again, uh, focused on uh, hepatitis C. But before we get the final joke of the day from Dr. Sag, I want everybody to give a hand to the ISUSA staff. they have really done a great job. How many people prefer this venue to a hotel? All right, so about half the people. So this, this was a success, and certainly it's an experience to be in this building. So, uh, uh, again, I think that uh, it's clear from this meeting that Croy has a lot of great information. Again, we'll hope for more information on opportunities and infections. But do you have a parting word of
2: wisdom uh, about um, Alabama football, do no, basketball, no, no, no. or something <laughs> else? It's hard to win championships, that's for sure. Um, no, it's just been great to come back every year and uh, seeing a lot of you for, at multiple meetings. But for those of you who are new, it's great to have you here. I think it's a it's a really nice time to synthesize what's uh, what's happened in the last year and just go over things together. Try to put it into clinical perspective, which is. Sort of that translational part, data are presented, but how do you use it in practice? That's what this meeting's about. I just want to encourage everyone to really fill out the, your evaluation forms. It's important to get your CME, of course, but we uh, really use that uh, very uh, aggressively. So when you say you'd like to hear about something, and we hear that from several people, that's likely to be on the agenda next year. So you know, let let us have your thoughts and. Uh, uh, both good and bad, uh, that we, we take it all into consideration. And, and I think that's what keeps the course fresh every year and uh, worthwhile. Thank great. Thanks very much. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs>